Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Pain to Profits. I'm your host, Samson Jagoras, and every single week, we bring on entrepreneurs to help you guys save time and level up on your entrepreneurial journey. And today, I'm actually incredibly excited to bring on somebody who we've never brought on before to talk about something that we've never really talked about before on the show, which is SBA lending. I got Ryan Smith here with Think SBA, and we're going to be going into his journey on how he went from pain to profits. He's been in banking. He was a college baseball player. Um, he's been a pastor. He's He's done all sorts of cool stuff, but now he's focused primarily on SBA. And if you guys are here and you're listening to this pod or you're watching it on YouTube, I think you're all trying to figure out how to exit the rat race and go from entrepreneur to entrepreneur. And so what you're going to uncover on today's show is how you can leverage the SBA to do that. So without further ado, Ryan, man, welcome to the show. How you doing? Yeah, Samson, thank you so much. I'm really excited to communicate that message that you uh, just shared about how people can uh, literally access SBA financing to, like you said, leave the rat race. Um, so thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, man, you bet. But before we start jumping too far into the weeds on SBA, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, who are you and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So i um, born in Wisconsin, moved to San Diego when I was eight years old, uh, had the ability to play baseball at a high level. So I played collegiate baseball for San Diego State University. I was drafted by the Texas Rangers in 1996 as a left-handed pitcher. Uh, And then really shortly after I exited minor league baseball, I started my entrepreneurial journey. As you said, you know, I've done everything from being a pastor to being a banker. Um, And then most recently in 2019, I exited the rat race myself, left corporate banking to start Think SBA. What was the the catalyst event to say, hey, I'm out of corporate banking and I'm going to go work in SBA with small business owners? So it was literally one specific meeting. Uh, I had this, this Goldilocks vision of being a banker, serving clients and staying with the same bank for 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, in 2017, I entered a meeting where I was there with the chief real estate officer, the chief executive office, uh, officer of the bank and the chief credit officer. And I had this loan opportunity that everyone thought was a slam dunk. The short story is the loan was declined not because of credit, but because of compliance. Uh, That was uh, in December of 2017. I walked out of that meeting and I said, I'm quitting corporate banking. How do I do it? And it took me until March uh, 15th of 2019 to build up that business plan and business model on the weekends. That, so that's uh, an incredible piece of wisdom. Obviously I wouldn't say it was a cushy gig working in corporate finance, but did you have a salary? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I had the biggest office, I had a salary, I had benefits, (laughs) I had stock options. I mean, um, from a banker's perspective, it was definitely a great gig. Yeah, but not enough to keep you there. So I'm actually really, I'm really interested to know what was the compliance issue? Like it didn't fit into their box Mm -hmm. and they, they couldn't sign off on it. Is that the issue? So in San Diego, there um, is an insurance company, which is a private insurance company. It's one of the largest in the country. And they have a private airline in San Diego that services the executives, right? So that was it. Well, um, there was legislation passed at the local level that was going to extend the runway. And they saw an opportunity to build an FBO and then uh, engage or um, and leverage fuel sales for that particular little airline company. And here was the catch. The airline company, because it was there to service the executives, had never made a profit. And so the compliance issue was we were going to have a borrower that never cash flowed 
we we're going to give them 12, 12 million bucks. It was going to be collateralized by, um, you know, the latest and greatest in, in aviation equipment, the FBO, et cetera. And we were going to get a corporate guarantee with about 150 million EBITDA. <laughs> but, but because the borrower had never cash, would never cash flow the loan historically, it was going to be a special mention credit. So every credit comes with a risk grade. And this would have automatically from day one been a special mention. And the chief credit officer said, we do not want to board a loan that from day one to the auditor's view will be a special mention loan, even though we have a strong guarantor. Is, is that because it just puts additional uh, constraints on the bank itself and forces them to do things that they don't really want to do that are like yeah, uncomfortable? I mean, yeah. So at the point, at that point in time, I was uh, employed by Western Alliance Bank Corp. And um, they eclipsed a certain amount of assets where an auditor was literally hired to go to the Phoenix Tower for Western Alliance Bank Corp every day for their job. So um, we were under a lot of scrutiny from the federal auditors to make sure that our portfolio was clean. Got it. And that was it. You said, okay, today's the day that I'm going to go write my business plan. So how do you... How do you end up settling on SBA is like, that's what I want to do. Cause you're, you know, hundred, you're going from talking about $150 million, you know, credit sheets to back up these loans on 12 million bucks to what's the typical loan size for an, an SBA type of transaction that you do. You know, I'd say the sweet spot would be two to two and a half million dollars for a business acquisition, maybe a little bit higher for a real estate transaction. Yeah. So how do you settle on that? How do you go from, $12 million in, you know, corporate banking to like, I'm going to go hang out with small business owners. There's a story for that, Samson. So here it is. Um, yeah. Literally uh, on my patio on the weekends, I created a business model around a company called Silver Strand Capital. And that is still my corporate veil today. If you've ever been to San Diego and you've driven over the Coronado Bridge, you've seen that beautiful layout in the Hotel Del Coronado to your left. Yeah. Just to the left of that is the Silver Strand State Beach. So um, as someone who looks quite frequently at what domain names are available, I was just <laughs> searching on the internet. I found silverstrandcapital.com was available and I named the business during that business plan process, Silver Strand Capital. But I came up with something that changed my mind and it was this. No one would know what I would do intrinsically with the name Silver Strand Capital, they would be like, Brian, what are you? Do you lend capital? Do you broker capital? Are you a private fund? They wouldn't right. really know what I did. And I had an epiphany and it's always related to espresso. So as you get to know me, <laughs> I drink espresso all the time. Uh, my family jokes, it's dangerous because I come up with all of these ideas after I drink it. Uh, <laughs> but the best idea that I ever came up with after having a drink of espresso was Think SBA. So the first thing I did was I went to Hover, which is the domain registrar that I use. I typed in Think SBA. And then I went to Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And I said, are those handles available? And then that's when I came up with the epiphany. Ryan, there's an opportunity in the marketplace to be an SBA loan specialist for the wave of Main Street businesses that would transfer to the next generation um, I'm a member of a group called Provisors and the individuals who are members are largely in their 50s and 60s. And so I've known about uh, this wave of transfer of wealth in our country now for over 10 years. And I saw SBA acquisition financing specifically 
as a great tool that I could bring not only to provisors, um, but then through my podcast, My SBA Loan Pro, which I started in 2019, to a greater national audience. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's a $96 trillion wealth transfer, the, the silver tsunami. So, be, I mean, be careful, man. You might have to pay uh, a certain lawyer some money for that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, silver tsunami is what they're calling it. And uh, there's definitely a wave, a 7 trillion of that's going to come in the form of business. My thesis on that is that they're not going to relinquish their real estate first. They're primarily going to relinquish their business because it's less passive. And a lot of the boomers that I know, the real estate that they do own is fairly free and clear or, or on really low leverage. And so they'll phase out you know, business first, and then they'll slowly unwind their real estate or maybe never sell their real estate. Maybe they'll just pass that on. They're more apt to sell their business. And uh, that's where the SBA fits perfectly into that. So I, I totally agree with that. As you were, as you're, you know, two years working on the weekends, trying to map that plan out to make that transition. Um, what was the mindset you had to go through to say, Hey, I'm gonna leave this cushy job. I'm gonna leave this salary. What were some of the fears that you're probably thinking about? you know, some of the the concerns that now on the other side of that, you're like, that was totally unfounded and irrational. So, um, so my major flaw is that I'm an eternal optimist. And so before I left the <laughs> bank, I literally had zero fears, um, but, boy. but you're going to love, you're going to love this. So, uh, because of what you alluded to, right. So I had the direct deposit every two weeks. I had the four weeks vacation, the stock options, like I had the whole nine yards. Um, and then I quit and my boss looks at me a little stunned and he says, okay, um, will you stay on for two weeks? Once you knew, uh, once you realized I was going to become a broker and not go to a competing bank, he said, Ryan, stay on for two weeks, um, transition your portfolio to somebody else. And so I said, okay, cool. I'll do that. So I did that for two weeks. Um, and then, uh, it was on April 1st of 2019 that I exited the bank officially. And then uh, I got paid, I think maybe a few days later, they just paid me out, um, everything they owed me. And then, I'm not kidding you, that absolute overconfidence that like, I'm going to, I told my wife, I'm like, sweet, I'm going to crush this. This is amazing. I start waking up in the middle of the night with a pit in my stomach. Um, yep. And I'm literally calculating the runway I had created for myself. And if I don't make a dime, how uh, long we can go as a family and not change our lifestyle. So I literally went from being extremely overconfident to waking up. Now, what changed that? So the third night in a row that I woke up with that pit in my stomach, there is something that came into my mind that changed that and I've never had it again. And it was this one thing, Samson, it was that I chose this life. Mm -hmm. I chose this move. And when I realized that, I understood one thing. All I had to do was rely on who I was as a person, what I knew about where I was going, and execute. And if I did that, then I had nothing to worry about. And it was like an instant where that pit in my stomach went away. I slept like a baby the rest of the night and I've been sleeping yeah. like a baby ever since. No, that's good. I mean, if you've ever made that transition, it's, it's much easier when you don't have responsibility, right? No family, no kids, no mortgage, no car payment, <laughs> um, no uh, gymnastics, swim team, club sports, right? eating out on the weekends. It's so much easier, right? Um, I remember I, when I made the transition, so I played at a division two school. I played football there to start, had a scholarship. 
And I left that scholarship to go take the walk on at CU. And I had the complete opposite effect of when I, you know, left making $300,000 a year to go full-time into entrepreneurship. I was sleeping in an apartment. I had no phone. I had no car. I ate friggin' top ramen every day. And it was like the greatest time of my life because I had this like chip on my shoulder, but I had no responsibility other than that. And so, uh, waking up in the middle of the night with a pit in your stomach and watching the, the coffers dry up, uh, is a very real thing. So was there ever a time when you thought, man, I got to get a job or I got to pick up a, I got to pick up a side gig to help me like bridge the gap while I get this thing cranking. So the, I'm, I'm happy to say that, uh, literally that never happened. And the reason is because uh, part of the reason I was able to leave the bank was because I had such a strong support system. So uh, right now, for example, most of my referrals do not come from, for example, listing brokers, which is a way that I know a lot of loan brokers receive referrals. But most of my referrals come from trusted advisors. So that would be the CPA, the fractional accountant, uh, the registered investment advisor, certified, certified financial planner, um, residential real estate brokers who say, hey, Ryan, this fell in my lap. I don't know what to do, but you're the SBA expert. And so the tagline, Samson, is when your client thinks SBA, think Ryan Smith. And uh, right. I was able to book my first loan in September of 2019. So I exited in April. I studied for the California Department of Real Estate exam for two to three weeks. I took the exam. I passed the broker exam. And May 1st, I was unleashed to the world uh, literally through having my licensing and then I booked my first loan, September of 2019. And then this is what's great. I outpaced my salary for 2019 in the fourth quarter of 2019 through brokering loans. Wow. I, I 2X'd my income from my previous corporate banking job the next year. And then it's wow. just been growing, growing, growing ever since. And so um, after that pit in the stomach left, after I closed <laughs> my first loan, now it's, okay, what do I do? Do I settle in, make like you said, you know, that three, $350,000 a year, golf two times a week, spend time with my family, which would be selfish and something that I'm absolutely able to do? Or do I do something different, push the envelope and really, in my opinion, which I'll announce for the first time on this show, make a drastic change within my business model extending what I do across the country uh, in a way that is not only going to um, enhance the way SBA loans are brokered, but it's going to literally duplicate, triplicate what I've done throughout the country and help other people who are now entrepreneurs, just like you say, become entrepreneurs because there are so many bankers out there that are dissatisfied with their current job. But like you said, right, they have all of the um, handcuffs in the trappings of a corporate job. And to think about leaving that sparks fear in them where, you know, I say I have a flaw where I wasn't afraid until it was too late. I'm thankful <laughs> I made it. But these people in a sane way are afraid before they make the jump. Um, but I'm going to give them the ability through the knowledge that I have to leave their corporate banking job two, three, four X their income and then what's more important to me and hopefully more important to them, it's going to give them time back so they can enjoy the finer things in life. So are they, are they plugging into your ecosystem and you're built, taking all that technology you've built and those systems to streamline the process 
and maybe even leverage your top level funnel awareness to push them leads in their respective market? Absolutely. So, um, though, and you hit the nail on the head, Samson, because there's definitely a national opportunity, right? So since being on Twitter six weeks ago, I'm already working on um, $15 million in acquisition in real estate SBA financing just from six weeks, just from growing 200 uh, subs within that period of time. And one of those is our deals. <laughs> Actually, not one of those is not our deals because I was I referred to you guys through provisors. Um, oh. if, if I add that, that's like 20 plus million. Um, uh, uh, and so, uh, so what I would be doing exactly like you said, right. I've got the marketing down. I've got the YouTube channel. I'm growing the Twitter. Um, I have the lenders, which is extremely important. I have the back office through my loan packaging software that's already there. Um, and so if they leave their corporate job, all they need to do is have the runway so that they can get through the first through uh, those first few months. Yep. Uh, and I'll just be targeting people just like myself, experienced bankers who know credit and know how to work with people. They want the freedom of being an entrepreneur, but they're not good at marketing. They're not looking at domain names. Those yeah. things scare them. And I'll literally remove all the obstacles. And then my goal, like you said, would be to have Think SBA in Chicago, in Dallas, in Houston, in Miami, um, all over the country. And uh, what I would like to do is build a team. I don't want to be a manager, but I'll, I am a coach. And so I'd love to coach high performing individuals, get them over the line so that they become an entrepreneur. And then I can envision national conferences where Think SBA licensees are just changing the way loans are brokered, putting the power of brokering an SBA loan in the client's hands in a way that's transparent, efficient, and accurate. Mm, I love that. It, it sounds like you have a clear, so you're right. That is the, the, those are the things that really bog people down. So you're kind of building like a, a franchise for lack of a better term, right? I don't want to call it a business in a box because you still got to be very skilled and understand banking and credit to be able to perform well. Mm -hmm. but all the back office crap, you're building a platform. Absolutely. But do you, do you spend much time thinking about like, Hey, if I was going to go start a business again, here's like my, you know, my one, two, three playbook. Like, this is how I would do it. Uh, I, I think about those things a lot. Maybe that's because mm -hmm. I work with so many different entrepreneurs in, you know, across the spectrum from trades to startups, to business buyouts, to private equity deals. Mm -hmm. But I'm always interested to learn new thought models. So I'd be really interested to know what yours is. So I think really what I'm good at, just if I extract myself from what I do day to day finance is the sales and marketing part of it and the process is part of it. And I see so many business owners that I work with who they don't know what their PL is. They don't know what their balance sheet is. They never market their business. They, if I ask them, how do you get new business? And they think this sounds good, and every business owner will say this, like with a badge of honor or pride, they'll say word of mouth. Yeah. And, and what I, what I hear there is they don't know how to sell and market. They don't know how to drive revenue and profitability or growth. They're just relying on, Hey, now that's definitely a component, like doing good work and someone telling someone that you did good work as a part of it. Um, but like, for example, I have been looking for a business to buy now for the past three years. Um, I was approved for an SBA 7A loan myself. 
and was about to buy the number one jet ski business in San Diego. But I found some challenges in the P&L and the balance sheet and the valuation became challenging because the seller didn't understand how CapEx um, diminished his profitability and therefore his valuation. Hmm. Yeah, that's um, most entrepreneurs struggle to create a predictable lead flow, mm -hmm. right? Referrals are awesome. And it's like their close rate on those is stupid, right? They're 99% of the way there by the time they talk to you on the phone, but it's not very predictable because it requires that person to go out and actually share the good news about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And the stats are pretty crazy, but I think it's like 87% of our happy customers are willing to write a good review about us, <laughs> but they don't because we never ask, right? Yeah. So one, they're not even asking, but two, they're not going to go out of their way to do it. Now the opposite is true. If you, if you piss somebody off, they're, they're happy to go tell everybody about it. That's right. Um, but when it comes to every business kind of reaches this point where they can build on brand, social proof relationships, and it's probably the most cost-effective way to do it. And then you cross this chasm where you go in order for me to go to the next level, I have to build a real lead funnel, build in some automation and scale the marketing, start leveraging paid media and creating a more predictable revenue model. And I, I think that's definitely a trap. And that's why you see so many really good salespeople, really good marketing people break off and go start their own companies because they get those things and all the other stuff can kind of just be like figured out. Revenue covers up a lot of mistakes. <laughs> let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's dive in and get, um, let's get into the, the hard stuff. Like what, what's been the hardest part of making this transition? I know when it comes to entrepreneurship, people are always talking about the sexy stuff and how much sex uh, success they've had, not how, not how much sex they've had, not success <laughs> Freudian slip there, um, how much success they've had. And, uh, they don't really talk about the, the difficult things, you know? And I think that's important because that's probably where the most lessons are learned, but like, what's been the hardest part for you? Obviously we talked about the pit in the stomach, but was there other challenges that you maybe didn't expect? So the, the most difficult part of what I do is managing my time. And I always tell people that when you're in lending, you don't have to go out and find business. Business will find you. It's like a fire hydrant coming towards you. The secret sauce to what I do is determining quickly, is this loan going to go to close? Does this borrower have the ability to execute or is it not going to close? And so managing my time with the right borrowers and the right deals to make sure that I'm pursuing those loan opportunities that will ultimately close um, and where everyone will have a win-win-win. The borrower wins, the bank wins, I win, the seller wins, et cetera. So managing my time there. And then um, understanding the ecosystem, right? So uh, one of the things that was good about me coming into SBA financing is that I had originated SBA 7A and 504 loans for over a decade. Um, however, I did not work specifically, for example, an SBA shop, right? Like an SBA shop that just does SBA loans every day. So I was a holistic relationship manager. And so coming into the SBA ecosystem was a learning process for me and understanding who the players are and who really control the transaction and where the money is going and where the money is coming from. And so just to give you an example, 
The listing broker has the borrower. The listing broker then will tell the borrower, go to this lender. And the listing broker can either be a good guy or gal or not so good guy or gal. And so, for example, though it hasn't happened a bunch, it did happen one time and it stung, really. I was working with two individuals for uh, over a year and a half. I was structuring their loan acquisition for them. They started from ground zero. We uh, got to the point where they were under LOI with a business and I sourced the best loan for them. And you would think that was the end of it, right? Ryan, hey, great job. You grew them up from infancy. You found them the right loan. You closed the deal, right? It was a $4 million acquisition in Dallas, Texas for a flower shop. Wrong. The gentleman calls me. And this is when I realized no matter how good of a person someone is, they are always going to do what's in their best interest, right? For themselves, their family, et cetera. So this particular gentleman had been out of work for a couple of years. He was a part of a search fund. And he calls me and he says, hey, Ryan, um, I need to talk to you about something. I said, "Okay." He said, the listing broker is saying to me, if I don't use their lender, they will not allow me to buy the business. Wow. And it was the first time that I've ever come across that. And that was about a year and a half in. And I said, well, what if I source a better loan for you? Or what if the loan I source for you is already better? Can I see the terms? And he said, no problem. Boom. So he shot me over the terms. I took him to one of the top SBA lending shops in the entire country. One of the top lenders, actually, he was named top SBA business development officer of the year one year. And we presented it. And the listing broker said, I'm not changing my mind. If you don't close with my lender, you will not be able to buy the business. And here's the crux, Samson. And this is where you'll learn a little bit about me. The lender that they went with promised up and down, we will close before the end of the year. My lender, we discussed it and I never tell lies. I never predict things that I can't ultimately control that back up or control. So my lender said this and he's great. He said, Ryan, we can likely close by the end of the year, but I'm not going to put a hundred percent guarantee label on that. And so we presented that we had better terms, no guarantee to close. The listing broker said to the buyer, if you don't close before the end of the year, the sellers are going to walk away. Right. They went with the other lender because they were forced to. And here's a million dollar question. Do you think that lender closed before the year end? Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. And then when I ended up speaking with the borrower later, he told me all of the issues that he experienced because banks are siloed. So you don't get told the next door until you go through the first door. Um, And that's something that I do for my borrowers. I tell them exactly what door we're going to have to walk through when so they can be prepared. And so that's, that, com- that's um, that banking background, right? Like that's the, the ability banking. to know what happens next. Right. And so not just as a broker, you're really a banker who happens to be a broker is your unique skill set. that, that have, what's the sad part about like the business brokering business. And I know this well, kind of being in that space is it's like an odd unregulated part of the market. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of, um, clearly that person, that broker was getting his pockets lined for, you know, he was getting a kickback on that deal, which would be a no fly in real estate, but those same types of regs don't actually happen in that market. So there's, there's not a lot of transparency. And so not surprising. I mean, I think as a, as anybody who's listening to this, who wants to buy a business, 
it's important to be aware of those things. And sometimes you got to call BS because the other thing that happens in the business brokering world that I've seen is they, they start, Oh, we got a lot of offers on the table. We got a few LOIs sitting there and we got people coming out to it and they don't. And, and in real estate, the department of regulatory agencies would, would crack down on you so fast. You're not allowed to say that if you don't actually have an offer. And so, um, you, you got to sometimes call, call bullshit, right. And just say, Hey man, I don't believe it. Here's my offer. Here's my terms. You know, if, if we're going to do this deal, we're going to use my broker. We're going to use my lender. I'm the buyer. You're the seller and let's do a deal or let's not do a deal, but you don't represent me. I represent myself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's the sad part, but hard education, right? So sucks for that guy. Did, did he ever get the deal done? Did they come back to the table? So, um, so that individual did close. He, he had a successful outcome. Um, and he definitely owns the business and he's doing well. So he had a good outcome. Yeah. Not doesn't always go that way. Mm -mm. Well, so let's talk about, let's talk more about SBA. Let's get like real tactical. So I'm a searcher and I'm, I'm an entrepreneur right now, or I'm trying to buy a business. Like what is, what makes SBA so special compared to all the other loan types? So in acquisition space, again, being inside of a bank and being a lender, there really isn't sub $5 million, a loan program that is, uh, uh, there really isn't a loan program for conventional options within banks to acquire businesses and, you know, what people will call the lower middle market to small business loans. And let me tell you why I work with individuals who tried to do that. And inside of a bank, they're going to have a liquidity test. They're going to have a real estate equity test, and then they're going to have a net worth test. So I'll tell people, look, you want to try to buy a business with a conventional loan? It's possible, but you're going to have to have 2x liquidity than the cost of the business. You're going to have to have an enormous amount of real estate equity, and you're going to have to have an enormous amount of net worth. Do you have a $20 million net worth? Yeah, that's probably not. Probably not. I would say 99.9%, .9 probably not. So then I say, but let me tell you about SBA Finance because it's literally teed up, ready to go. And it's for people who have financial constraints, but at the same time have experience. They have the requisite liquidity. They have good to great personal credit scores. And then uh, C that I coined is credibility. And credibility is when I can really take someone's background, their education, and funnel that through the SBA system. And they literally have cred or credibility with the lender which means the lender will stretch beyond what they would typically do for someone who didn't have that. And I'll just give you a real quick example. So I worked with an individual here in San Diego. He bought a landscaping company. He was a Columbia grad, right? A London School of Business grad, private equity. I mean, this guy was absolutely amazing, a great friend, a great client. And I was able to take him to a lender and stretch on a loan where he had less than 10% liquidity of the purchase price overall, and he had zero collateral, and he had a high rent because he lives in a coastal community in San Diego. Yeah, He designed it that way because here's the secret. For example, if you are a searcher and you don't own a home, don't go buy that home and then become a searcher. Wait, because collateral is not in what I have coined, the science of SBA loan approval. Collateral is not necessary to acquire a business. In fact, 
most SBA acquisition loans are severely under collateralized. But if you do have a home, they're going to try to make you put that on the balance sheet. So if you do have a home and there is more than 25% equity in that home, it is a non-negotiable above the $500,000 limit. The SBA is absolutely, or the lender, um, in order to maintain their PLP status and to justify the loan to an auditor, must take that collateral. Got it. Is that the, are those rules the same with SBA 504? So obviously there's two different loan types, SBA mm-hmm. 7A, SBA 504. And SBA 504, correct me if I'm wrong, is not generally used as an acquisition loan type unless it's real mm-hmm. estate. It's generally more like equipment and real estate. But there are cases when you can use an SBA 504 to acquire a business with the real estate, wouldn't it make sense? Um, but do, first question, does what you just said, the collateralization of that loan, does that still apply when you're buying real estate or, or do they use the real estate as the collateral? So the 7A and the 504, let's talk use of proceeds. So I clarify this for your audience. So cool. the 7A use of proceeds is for goodwill, fixed assets, equipment, and real estate. For example, let's say you're buying a building and you're just buying a building and you put 10% down. You can absolutely do that with the 7A. However, that 5% delta between 85% loan to value and 90% loan to value means that the borrower will have to pledge additional collateral if available. Got it. If they inject an additional 5% and get down to the 85% loan to value, then they do not have to pledge additional collateral. That's the 7A. The 504 cannot finance, and just be specific, cannot finance goodwill, which is why it is not a vehicle for acquisition financing. So it specializes and is only used for real estate and equipment. And the SBA program is so powerful is because you can lever up to 90% for mixed use properties or multi-purpose, I'm sorry, multi-purpose properties. So you can leverage up to 90% for multi-purpose properties but you can only leverage up to 85% through the 504 for special purpose properties. Special purpose would be, for example, a gas station, sea store, um, some other uh, property types, but they're even like situations. Rest, like a restaurant, maybe? Restaurant, yeah, and that, and that really depends. But, um, but yes, restaurants uh, could also be included in that. Uh, so, so the 504, you can comfortably leverage to 90% and not have to pledge any additional real estate. Got it. Um, well, what's the most common structure? Cause I think one of the things that limits people is they go, well, how would I ever afford to buy a $5 million business and even put 10% down? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think things they don't know about that are more common in the world of, of business acquisition, which is what I love about it is there's lots of seller carries, uh, seller carry on full standby. Um, I think now the SBA kind of just changed some of their guidelines as it relates to equity rollover, which is still being explored and not super clear, but what are some of the most common ways you see deals get structured? Um, and, uh, you know, I guess what, what's your favorite way to see a deal kind of get structured? Mm-hmm. So my favorite way to see a deal get structured is where everybody's participating and the buyers win with the best interest rate that they qualify for. And let me use an example that is going to be to the signing table next Friday. It's an in-home healthcare provider in Los Angeles. We have two borrowers and we have the seller. 
So in this particular scenario, the sale price is two and a half million dollars. All right. Um, the, the EBITDA on that is about uh, $450,000 EBITDA, or, or, or if you call it seller discretionary earnings, once we back out um, the seller's comp, et cetera, right? So these two individuals are going to acquire this business and each of them is going to contribute only 25, um, uh, yeah, they're only gonna contribute, I'm sorry, 2.5% uh, equity injection each. Wow. So two and a half percent from buyer A, buyer B. Now the seller is contributing 5% seller carry. And we started structuring this loan before the new guidance. So that one is going to be on a 10 year full standby. Wow. But here's the thing, right? So um, they're, they're putting in, I mean, so two and a half million, 10% would be 250,000, you know, 5% is 125,000. So these guys are putting in like $70,000. And this is the real power of SBA financing. And it's what I refer to as their cash on cash return when they sign the deal. So for example, um, they're going to get a $150,000 line of credit. They're going to get $100,000 working capital, which is $250,000. So the day they sign, they're going to have a cash, a positive cash on cash return to buy this business that's going to spin off approximately $450,000 a year when they acquire it. So that's the power of the SBA is that for the right person with the right bank and the right seller, when you know how to structure the loan and you know where to go, you can absolutely put a structure together that's a win-win for the bank, the buyer, the seller, everybody. And here's what's even better. I didn't take them to a high quarterly adjustable interest rate lender at prime plus 275 or some lenders right now in the marketplace are at prime plus 3% due to the recent change in SBA interest rates. These guys were able to get prime plus one and they chose the quarterly adjustable. Now I'm going to say something here that most people don't know about, but I work with lenders and these individuals, they had 6.25% fixed on the same business acquisition for 10 years. Mm. But they walked away because that lender was going to require that they inject 10% and the seller inject 5%. So they chose to go with a lender that was going to be prime plus one instead of getting a 6.25 fixed interest rate. So um, the one thing I would stress to people who are watching this and listening to this is that there is a wide spectrum. Today, there is a wide spectrum of SBA financing that is available to fit the goals and objectives of searchers, whether it's a low fixed interest rate whether it's a moderate quarterly adjustable interest rate, or they just want to blow and go. They just want the fastest. They want to close in 45 days. Heck, we can go get a prime plus 275 quarterly adjustable interest rate, and we can close this, close this thing in 45 days. Um, it's really up to what does the borrower want? What are their goals and objectives for their financing? Well, yeah, clearly, clearly they had modeled the financing to say, hey, even if the rates do adjust, we're playing a little bit of a calculated game that we still have enough cash flow in the business mm -hmm. that we could override this. We, we don't have too much into the deal. So in the worst case scenario, the whole thing blows up. We're, we're still going to be okay. We're still going to be able to get through it. Um, will you just, I want to like back, back up just a little bit. Will you talk very briefly about what 
what is full standby? What does that mean? And why, why would a, a searcher or somebody who wants to buy a business, why would that be important to them? So the old rule on full standby was the seller, they were able to participate in the equity injection. Okay. So help the borrower who did not, let's say, have enough equity injection, because there's a couple components to liquidity. There's the actual liquidity that will go into the loan. But then what's important is post-closing liquidity as well, because like I share with people, you don't want to buy a business and then you can't go to the grocery store. That's not practical. So right. there is the equity that goes into the transaction. And then there's the post-closing liquidity. Well, what the seller is able to do, again, historically, it was contribute up to 5% equity injection toward the purchase by putting a note, a seller carry subordinated to the SBA on full standby for 10 years. So that means that the borrower in reality is not able to pay back that full standby note to the seller until two things happen. Number one, the loan matures and is paid off completely at year 10, or the borrower pays the loan off at any point before then because there's no prepayment penalty on acquisition financing, and then they can pay the seller note. So historically, it was 10 years. But let's look at reality. Let's say we have a 75-year-old owner of a landscape company in the middle of the country, and he says, wait, I'm going to give you 10 years <laughs> to pay me back? Absolutely not. 10 years from now, I might not even be above ground. Now the SBA, which is absolutely powerful, they've reduced it from 10 to two years. And on top of that, if it cash flows, the seller can contribute to the equity injection on an interest only basis paid back concurrent to the SBA loan. And so now you're 75. My dad's 74. He works out five hours a day. Uh, he drives a slick sports car, lives in Wichita, Kansas. And um, he would be like, I can wait to 76. Not a problem. Am I going to wait to 84? Mm, that's different. So you can see how um, reducing the full standby period from 10 to 2 drastically changes the minds of sellers who are now more than happy to contribute that equity and wait two years and not 10 years. Yeah, so powerful. And guys, this is why it's so important to work with a team, a broker, uh, a group who just really understands how these deals come together. I mean, there's I've even seen deals that have honestly been 100% financed by the way that they've stacked up the equity and the notes and the cash flow on the business. Because they're not just like you've said, they're not really just underwriting you, they're also underwriting the business. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're trying to understand how the whole deal is going to come together and how this essentially asset can pay for itself. And on the other side of that, if you're thinking about selling a business, this is why it's so important to be preparing, you know, one to two years before you're ready to even take the business to the market and actually getting your business size for debt and understanding how the next buyer is going to buy it. Cause that might dictate some of the ways in which you operate your business as well. So that's incredible, man. We, I, we could go on for hours. Just, I'm I could. sure you got like, yeah, well, I know you got, I'm excited. You just have so many different opportunities yeah. in coming in front of you in different ways you've seen. I mean, even some of the reasons why we've been working together is mm -hmm. you just got a lot of experience leveraging private equity and how that fits into the deal and how that affects personal guarantees. And mm -hmm. it's probably a different podcast. We'll probably do a breakdown. If we get these few deals that we got going done, we'll do a breakdown on here on how those all came together. I think that'd be incredible. Absolutely. Um, kind of moving to the next area, you know, you've, 
you've been in the game for a while now. You've seen a lot of crap since 2019. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, you 2020 was uh, a pretty pivotal pivotal year for you as you worked through that. And um, but what's keeping you awake right now? What are you thinking about? Whether it's exciting you or maybe concerning you, I'm always interested to know what's on another entrepreneur's mind. So I have built truly an indestructible referral source here in San Diego. But when I look at them, they're 10 years older than me. And so they may not be referring business to me in 10 years, right? And so that's why I'm looking to YouTube and Twitter. So again, I'm an internal optimist. And what is keeping me up at night, what I'm excited about is taking my message, taking the power of the SBA and unlocking those opportunities for searchers and real estate acquirers through SBA financing. And really, I'm only limited by my ability to communicate that message on all of these platforms. And then again, the excitement of taking what I'm doing and taking them to a local market, a Chicago, a Dallas, a Miami, a New York, and replicating what I'm doing in those markets. And so um, I'm extremely excited about that. Now, one of the things that um, as someone might say in the South, you know, I have a craw, uh, you know, about is when I see, and it's, this is happening all over the place. I work with these guys. So some of the people that are out there, um, I work with them. I know them and they're, and they're really good people. Uh, but this is what someone has to understand between the bank and a broker. And I spoke with a listing broker literally last Friday who didn't understand this difference. And this is the difference. And this is why I left banking, by the way, too. Another reason. So no matter what bank you're at, you have a box. So there's a prominent lender on you, or sorry, on Twitter. And when I engaged with him, he literally said, Ryan, I'm a one trick pony. And that's great. He knows who he is. He knows what he does. But if you go directly to a lender, they're a one trick pony. They do what they do and they might do it right. And you might be a fit, but I'll tell you what. They're going to say we're the most efficient. They're not. They're going to say we have the best back office. They do till they They don't. don't. Right. (laughs) So they're selling on all of these things, but they're not telling you, oh, by the way, you're prime plus three. So what is challenging to me right now with just like you and I are doing, right? So we have high tech audio visual equipment that allows us from the comfort of our home or a studio to communicate our message to the whole United States in a quick way. That's fantastic. But what it's also done is given people the opportunity to sell something that isn't right for most borrowers because what I can do right now, absolutely guaranteed if we have an open competition, right? We're not going to, but if we did, I could take any borrower who went to that bank or those banks and they pay prime plus three, they close it in 60 days, all of those things, I could take them to another lender who would be just as efficient, just as nice, all of those things, close on time and all of that, and re- drastically reduce their interest rate and structure the loan, which a lot of people don't talk about, but structure the loan, like shielding pledged real estate, um, which you can do if you know the rules and all of those things. And so um, I'm not selling a box. What I'm selling is you as the searcher can literally have the power in your hands yes. to receive the loan that's best for you. And the first thing I say when I speak with a borrower, and this happened yesterday, 
Someone from Twitter contacted me. We have the call. He's a prominent searcher. And I said, the first thing I want you to know is that everything we do from this point forward, it's about you. It's not about me. It's not about the broker over here who's listing the company. It's not about the bank. Everything we do is about you. Because I can tell you, being inside the industry, that it's usually, this is the first conversation a broker has with a lender. How much can you pay me? And when can we close? Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. My conversation is totally different. And I want to communicate to borrowers that they have the power. So many borrowers that I work with, they approach a lender or they approach a listing broker. They approach the transaction from an inferior uh, perspective. And I want to tell them, you're the star of the show. Yep. And you just need somebody who's been inside of the ecosystem, literally as a banker, right? Inside to know how to flip control so that it's in your hands. And now we go get the loan that's best for you. And guess what? On the compensation side, I'm going to put a thread out today on Twitter. I'm going to expose how I'm compensated cool. and what I do. And you alluded to this earlier, Samson. So when we start our engagement, I'm the banker. I got the banker hat on. And then when we go to lenders, I'm the broker. And then once we choose the bank or the lender, now I'm the trusted advisor and I'm snipering all of those possible uh, uh, those possible landmines that are coming out in the front of the loan as we move forward with the process. And so I literally allow the borrower then to relax, walk across the field, knowing we're going to close the loan with the least amount of um, uh, with the least amount of challenges and issues as we continue forward. Uh, this is incredibly important because everybody thinks because they think all debt is created the same way. Like in the world of residential real estate, like you go to, you know, five different banks, they're all going to give you the same rate, the same terms. They're all going to kind of be structured the same way, unless you're getting into the world of like jumbo loans or commercial financing. But that's the experience that, you know, the majority of people have with. And so they assume that like one bank is the same as the next bank, one broker is the same as the next broker. And that is definitely not the case. Mm -hmm. You've made that abundantly clear right now. I'm going to make that abundantly clear. It's there's different flavors for different types of deals with different types of structures. And it's sometimes it depends on the terms price is one thing, but terms are a totally different thing. You know, mm -hmm. you don't want to put up your own personal balance sheet. You might pay a premium on the rate mm -hmm. in order to get, um, you know, better terms, not having to put up a personal guarantee. So all that stuff matters long-term. Um, dude, I could do this for hours. So <laughs> what I want to do, and I'm just going to put this out there right now, yeah. when we do our first couple deals, but just future deals, I'd love to have you come on and just do some breakdowns because all of the examples are always the best way for me personally to learn is to say, oh, wow, that's interesting. I never thought about structuring a deal that way. One of the ones that I'm most excited about in a couple of weeks, we're going to have uh, Chelsea Mandel on here. She's uh, comes from the world of sell leaseback. So she's actually helping people take real estate, do a purchase and sale agreement, do a sale leaseback, take the loan proceeds from the, the real estate sale at the closing table, put them as a down payment on the business and have like zero out of pocket deal, which is incredible. So the more of those I can learn about, the better. But Absolutely. last questions, we'll kind of land the plane here. Mm -hmm. What do you think you, you deal with a lot of entrepreneurs? I mean, you're seeing them every single day from, you know, startup searchers to private equity guys to, you know, some guy who's trying to merge another company. But in your opinion, as an entrepreneur, what's the difference between entrepreneurs who are successful and those who give up, quit, or maybe even never get started? 
it comes down to Samson, and this is something like you said, I deal with a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, so I'm closing a loan, like I said, next Friday for that in-home healthcare. Um, one of the individuals on that loan, he graduated from MIT. You would think maybe he's all over me every single day. That guy is cool as a cucumber. <laughs> he asks me if I have the ability to speak with him when he needs to speak with me. So he just doesn't call me. He asks me via text, Ryan, are you available? We speak about something very specific. I answer his question. He thanks me. He moves on. So that's one approach. And the more intellectually stable people I work with, that's the way they operate. They close the loan. Now, here's the other end of the spectrum. The people who don't trust. If they don't trust inherently, they're not going to trust me, the lender, and they're constantly texting and calling and they're worried. And so what do you think that does? That puts so much pressure on them that literally throughout the deal, they're almost talking themselves out of it every single day because they don't trust the people who they've surrounded themselves with to close the loan. So I would just encourage anybody that if you are a searcher, you're an entrepreneur, you're looking to get out into this big world of acquisitions, which I get it. I tell people what I do is I take the ocean and I turn it into a jacuzzi. There's this <laughs> big wide world of SBA lending and all of these different advisors. And I simplify it and I say, this is the target. This is how we get there. And if they have come to terms with themselves, that they can trust people like me who are trustworthy, then they can literally do what they do, focus on the due diligence, focus on the business that they're going to acquire. And then if they have a question, check in with me. But the ones that make it through with the least amount of headache and heartache have the most trust in their team. And the ones who uh, look like a shuttle re-entering the atmosphere, <laughs> just barely making it with the fire coming off of them are the ones who lack that trust in their trusted advisors. And all they're doing is nitpicking every single day. Where are we? What's going on? Is this going to close? Is it not? And yeah. it so that's your, what I would say. It stills your, your positive brain. You know, when, when we're in a, in a positive state of mind, we're like 31% smarter. And so I think the biggest key is just most entrepreneurs are the, the successful ones are really good at handling stressful situations. And, mm -hmm. and if it does get stressful, they're good at shifting their paradigm so that it doesn't break them down. And then even better than that, hire really smart people <laughs> that are smarter than you, that's right. pay them well and let them do their friggin' job. <laughs> like, that's it. Right. Well, man, this is tremendous. I can't wait to do the next one. If people wanted to get a hold of you, they want to follow along with your content. You have a great podcast. You're putting out tons of content on Twitter. Um, I don't know where else you're, you're on, you're on LinkedIn as well. What, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? And then we'll drop those in the show notes. Yeah. So, um, Hey, my phone number is open anytime. 858-762-2774. You want to find me in Google and all the platforms, just type in Ryan Smith, think SBA, and you'll get every single platform, my podcast, Twitter, YouTube, and, um, connect with me that way. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you. You guys heard it first. If you're here to buy a business or you're thinking about escaping the rat race in order to go out on your own and live out your entrepreneurial journey, the biggest step you can do is make headway by connecting with a, a really high quality broker who can help you secure the debt mm -hmm. because they're going to be your best trusted advisor along the way. 
to get the deal over the line and give you the most wisdom advice on how you can bring it together, even though you think you might not have the money. So until next time, guys, uh, we'll see you then.